Well, it was a great joy to serve with your church family and other guests that attended this weekend, but I consider it a high honor whenever a church family and lead pastor and elders allow me the privilege of feeding the flock on a worship service weekend, because this is what matters most, God's word. And today we're gonna dig into one of the most glorious, big God chapters in all the Bible. I read through the whole Bible every year, and I've got some chapters that in my mind are just big, big, big God chapters. And I think they're there because we tend to be most aware of big, big, big problems that just suck us down like a magnet to this earth right here, right now, right here, right now. So there's a reason God gives us these glimpses. And we're going to dig into one of them today. But even before I read it, I want to give you some background on this great chapter, what was going on when it was written, because I think when you know what was going on, it'll even mean more to you. In fact, to appreciate chapter 40, you've got to back it up and you've got to read the first 39 chapters because the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are nothing but judgment, gloom, and doom until this incredible chapter of hope that so many believers love and know so well. See, leading up to chapter 40, there have just been a string of horribly wicked leaders and kings in Israel that all came to a head. It all came to a head with the horrific reign of wicked King Ahaz. And so after decades of this kind of wickedness, you can imagine the people of God were praying for a good king. Give us a good king. And God gave them one in King Hezekiah. Because 2 Kings 18.5 says, there was no one like him of all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Finally, some godly leadership in the nation. But as you follow the story, you'll see that even the best leaders are faced with some of the toughest problems. And that's important for us to keep in mind today, I think. Yes, pray for God to raise up godly leaders in the church, in the community, in our nation, in our world. Most appropriate prayer. But it is a huge mistake to ever think if we could just get the right leaders in place, everything about our future would be secure and the conditions of our land would prosper and improve. Not necessarily. You see, as soon as King Hezekiah was in office, he faced three great problems that you see leading up to this chapter 40. Number one, he faced an overwhelming power, an enemy in the north. It was the power of Assyria that just kept growing and growing and growing in its power until finally one of the most aggressive, wicked leaders they ever had came into power at the same time as Hezekiah, Sennacherib. And under his rule, the northern part of Israel was invaded, devastated, and scattered. And that means that now this wicked superpower is knocking on the door of the little two tribes that remain that were called Judah. Number two, Hezekiah himself faced, faced an illness, deathly ill during his reign. And the word of the Lord actually assured him, you're going to die until he cried out, prayed to the Lord, asked for more life, and God promised him 15 more years of life. Number three, the king of Babylon, who at that time was not 
a superpower. Heard about Hezekiah's illness and healing and sent messengers with a letter and gifts. And Hezekiah foolishly showed him all the treasures of Jerusalem and the palace. And God sent the prophet Isaiah to Hezekiah and said, you have made a desperate mistake because this nation that you think is your friend, Babylon, is actually going to plunder you and carry everything you have away, including some of your very own descendants. Now imagine hearing all this for the first time. That the future, we tend to think, we always hope that the future, whatever's, where, wherever we're headed, whatever's coming next would be better than what our kids have now. I want it to be better for the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. Imagine hearing that the future for the next 50 to 100 years for your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will not be one of freedom but oppression. And imagine knowing that it's the word of the Lord himself that's bringing you this news and not just those that are speculating on the radio, talk shows, those that try to anticipate where we're headed. It's the word of the Lord bringing you this bad news. And within three generations, it happened just like Isaiah prophesied. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar marched on Jerusalem, reduced the city to a heap of rubble, deported most of the able people, and left the rest to a scavenger life with a city with no walls. And so this great chapter that so many believers have known and loved for so long was actually written to a group of people who had just received some of the most devastating news that the future was not going to be what you would hope for. Isn't that how it happens for us so often in this life? Your future and my future can change, can change dramatically with one piece of news that you didn't see coming and you have no power to change. Maybe that's where you are today. Something has happened in your life. Something's happened in your life that has changed the entire direction of your life and future. And there's nothing you can do about it. There is no fix, especially for us in America, the Western world, but America especially. We are so accustomed as Americans. There's gotta be a solution. There's gotta be a fix. There's gotta be a drug. There's gotta be a medicine. There's gotta be something that someone can change this. There must be a fix. And there's no fix. What do you do when something happens in your life that has no fix and it changes? It changes the direction and your future for the next 10, 20, 30, maybe for a lifetime. That's what's going on when God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks this message of chapter 40. And so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the prophet Isaiah when God says to him, imagine this assignment. God says to Isaiah, I want you to comfort these people. Imagine that assignment. After 39 chapters of judgment and gloom and doom, I'm sure Isaiah was thinking, God, 
in light of all that you have already spoken through me to them. What could I possibly say that would be, be any comfort? What could possibly be said that would bring hope? Isaiah chapter 40 answers that question. Because Isaiah chapter 40 puts on display the sovereignty of God and reminds us that God sits enthroned over all the events of history, including those that are impacting your life and my life right now. He sits enthroned over all events of history so that no matter what happens, this is what the Bible teaches, no matter what happens in our national life or in your personal life, a sovereign, loving, wise, good God is in control of it all for his glory and our good. Now stand with me as I read this great chapter, standing as I read Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands, say it, say it louder forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, 
He lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they're counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Oh, lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created these things. He's talking about the stars, the galaxies, the universe above. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what does God say to people who have been shattered by national or personal circumstances? Well, we could dig into this chapter for weeks, but today I just wanna highlight two of the most important things you gotta get. Two, number one, you must know who your God is in the midst of shattering circumstances. Oh, don't hear what I'm not saying. Knowing God is never optional but it is essential, essential in times of crisis. Four times in this chapter, four times in this chapter, he calls us to behold something about God. Verse nine, behold. Verse 10, behold. Verse 15, behold. And then in verse 26, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who, not what, who, has created this universe. Listen to me. When the what of your circumstances, 
begins to overwhelm and overshadow the who of who's in control and with you in those circumstances, you will lose heart. You will lose heart. Our enemy Satan and our sinful flesh and this world is like a magnet that's doing everything it can to suck you down and pull you down as if the world is no bigger than right here, right now, this moment. My world is no bigger than this current trial and trouble, almost like with shrink wrap. Our enemy loves to do it, our flesh does it, and one of the roles of God's word and God's spirit is to like take a spear and punch a hole in that so that you can breathe again and you're reminded, oh, but there's more, oh, but there's more, and I'm not home yet. We've got too many Christians, I I hope you realize the only way this could be your best life now is if you're going to hell. Tell Joel Osteen, the only way this could be your best life now is if you're going to hell next. This is not your best life now. There was another bestseller before his right here. It's called the Bible. And the Bible never says this is your best life now. It says it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And there's more, there's more, there's more. You can be informed by how you should think by what the New Testament writers how they refer to us all through the letters of the New Testament. You ready? Exiles, strangers, pilgrims, foreigners. Does it sound like you'll be here long? Does it sound like you should feel comfortable? I just don't feel comfortable more and more. Good. If you're sitting there and thinking, I love it, not a good sign. You probably don't know him. If you're filled with his spirit and you're filled with light and you know about his kingdom, you've been translated from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son and he's given you eyes to see that his kingdom is here now and you get to be a part of it. And it's not in fullness or fruition, but there's something else. I live seeing more. I live seeing more. But we got Christians that You would think in the 18 months we've been through that Christians would be like, oh my goodness, I cannot live without the Bible. I'm reading my Bible like never before. I wish. All statistics are showing that Bible reading, not by those Christians that we don't think really do it right anyway, evangelical Christians, Bible reading has plummeted. And they're glued to Fox News and CNN News and talk radio in the car. I must know the next horrible thing to be angry about. Please, I don't want to miss it. I need up to the moment news about what bad just happened and what's about to happen bad so I can be upset and fearful and angry some more. And they're not reading their Bible. Go ahead and sign up for some kind of psychotropic drug because you'll need it. You will just be freaking out, you'll be anxious, you'll be fearful, you'll be depressed, and God has something for you. It's called his word. This is what punches a hole through that and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's more. God never intended for you to live this life with no bigger perspective than this life. And CNN News, Fox News, the Discovery Channel, one more knee surgery, I don't know what you're watching, how you're wasting your time, this breaks my heart when I, when I say to people, like, tell me where you're reading God's word. Uh, I'm just too busy, I don't have to. Oh, shut up. You are not too busy. If you just took this stupid thing right here and smashed it on the ground, you have like 100 hours back in your week. People touch this and look at it like every six minutes. How many stupid kitten videos do you need to watch? How many TikTok things do you need to see? But you're watching stuff 
You're burning up hours and then you wonder why you're depressed. Put it down, turn it off and pick this up and sit in front of God's word and say, show me who you are. Show me who I am in light of who you are. Show me what you've done. Show me what you're doing and show me what you're going to yet do. And I wanna get in on it, oh God. And you'll have a little more hope. You'll have some more peace. You'll have a sense of purpose. You'll have some joy. But you won't get it apart from know, and notice I'm not saying know about God. Knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. Do you realize that? You must know, and you can't ride on Pastor Charlie's shoulders or the elders or some godly man or woman you respect. You personally must know God in times of shattering national or personal circumstances. Because I want you to note in verse 21 and 28, when he says, do you not know? Two times he says, do you not know? It's the Hebrew word for know that is not simply cognitive. I know that as a factoid. It's the Hebrew word for know that is experiential. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I and literally in the Hebrew, that be still verb says cease striving. We're, we got Christians striving today. They're striving, they're kicking and thrashing and carrying on. Be still. And you can only be still when you know that he is God. He is God. He is God. He's still on his throne. He is God. He's up to something. He's at work in our world and he's with us and he's for us and he's with us and he's for us and he's on the move. You must know God. But it's interesting also in verse 21 and 28, the Hebrew word for heard is not just you heard the noise. Like you can say to someone, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. That does not mean that you're being changed by that. That's actually a nice way of telling someone, shut up. I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. It's not just sound bounced off your auditory nerves. The Hebrew word for heard there is to hear something in a way that you grasp it and it changes what you think you can do next. Oh, that's when you've really heard something. When it's not just information, but it's transformation. That now changes. Oh, if that's true and I get a hold of it, woo, that changes what I think I can do next. If I know not just about him, but I know him and I'm resting in him and trusting him and there's an intimacy, that changes what I think I can do next because I know him, I know him, I know him, I know him. So let's walk through some of the highlights of what we need to hear and grasp and truly personally know about God that would change what you think you can do next. Because I'm of the opinion, sorry, you may disagree. I'm of the opinion we've got a whole lot of Christians doing the wrong things right now. And they're all about something other than the main thing. And we need to get back on track with what is God up to, what is most important, and what is he calling us to be and do for such a time as this, right now. We get to be his people right now. Look at this first thing. Look at how God's power and authority are never frustrated by the decisions of earthly rulers. We get frustrated, right? Oh my goodness, I can't believe they're gonna do that and that, and they're passing that law, that, that, that. 
God is never frustrated by the decisions of earthly rulers. There's such a contrast here in this chapter of the power of God and the power of human beings. Look at it again in verse 15 to 17. The nations are a drop in the bucket. Verse 17, all nations are before him as nothing and less than nothing. Verse 23, he brings the princes to a lot of, a lot of nothing. We think they can do all things and are making all the difference. And then God's word over and over says nothing, 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 nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely. See, here's what, here's what you gotta understand, you guys. And you see this, if you're in the habit of only reading your New Testament or the Psalms or whatever, if you're missing out on the Old Testament, you're missing out on some really essential food that you need right now for shattering times. And it's this, it's our Old Testament. There's a reason God gave it to us. Some of those big, long Old Testament books absolutely put on display that God is sovereign over the nations and sovereign over wicked rulers. One of my favorite things to do, and I've got them circled and highlighted in my Bible, when you read books like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, you'll see God saying things like this, Nebuchadnezzar, all right, good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. No fish sticker on his chariot. He was not playing Christian music in his chariot. Wicked, 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 wicked man doing terrible things. Here's what God says. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. God's word says in Psalm 75, I raise one up, I put one down. You guys, God, I hope you realize, is not frustrated in the heavenlies right now like some Christians are. God is not turning to the cherubim and seraphim and saying, oh my goodness, next time we gotta get the vote out. We gotta get the vote out. We gotta get Christians marching and voting. And what happened? God is not on plan B, C, or D. He's still on plan A with his purposes for the world. He's a secure, happy, sovereign, loving, wise, good, all-powerful God. Amen. And he's our God. Amen. He didn't promise you would understand it. Well, I'd like him to tell me what's going on. Just fall on your face. Even when I hear Christians say, and when I get there, I'm gonna ask him. No, you'll be speaking into the ground for about a century first because you'll be on your face and then you won't even wanna ask it because you'll understand. Now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. You're going to actually say, oh my goodness. Here's what the Bible teaches and it's true about our God. There would have been no better way to do this than what he did. You realize that? Some Christians have bought into and have acted like, oh my goodness, like what, what is going on? Like, oh, we need to help God. You don't need to help God. You need to worship God. You need to fall down in front of God. You need to humble yourself, and then you need to ask that God, as you know him, to give you the humble courage to live for what matters most, knowing he is still in control and up to something good. That's what our Bible teaches. Well, secondly, look at how God's love for his people is never diminished, even in the worst of circumstances. If you're not careful, this notion of big God, sovereignty, high and lifted up, almighty, can come across kind of cold and stoic and distant. But right here in one of the biggest big God chapters, we have a reminder that he's not just high and lifted up. He is also tender and personal and eminent. 
Look at what I'm talking about beginning in verse 10. Behold, his reward is with him. He's not talking about bringing us a reward for staying faithful as his people. He's calling us his reward. We are his reward. We are his people. He loves us. We're precious. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. There are times that this high and lifted up, holy, holy, mighty, sovereign God carries you in his arms. You see the transcendence of God and the eminence of God in this chapter, that he's with us, that we celebrate in a big way in December, but it's true all year long. Emmanuel, God, say it. Say it louder. He's with us, you guys. He's with us. And if he's with us and for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. These are truths that Christians have known and sung and talked about and stitched on logo wear. They're just not living it like it's true anymore. It's still true today, today, today. So this great chapter shows you the power and sovereignty of God and also the personal tenderness of God, both. Because look at verse one again. I want, you to show, I want you to see some really encouraging pronouns. In that one verse, he says, my God. I'm sorry, he says, my people, and I'm your God. My people. And he's our God. He's not just a God. He's your God. Your God. He calls us my people. He says he's your God. There's a relationship, a personal, intimate relationship that can never be severed despite shattering circumstances and despite dark, foreboding future. That can't change any of this. So you must know personally, experientially, who God is. Now, I think what we're finding out, I believe, I've been a pastor 35 years, I've been at the same church 25, just like Charlie. I think we're seeing a sifting, you guys, of who knows God and who is just in it for some other reason. We're finding out who Jesus was always their second flag to begin with, not number one. We're, we're headed into times where if you don't really know him and you aren't truly born again, filled with the spirit and excited about being a part of his agenda and his kingdom, you're gonna look for an exit door on this whole thing called Christianity. But that's okay, because our church just got smaller over the last 18 months by hundreds of people. But I believe who's left is going to be, do, be able to do more for the glory of God because we'll have more people who are like, we're focused on the gospel, we're about his spirit, we're about his kingdom, and we believe his promises. God, you guys, God is not into numbers, remember that? With Gideon, he said, oh my goodness, too many. Get rid of some, still too many. Still, God delights in doing amazing things through remnant, little, weak. Not big, not big. Number two, not only do you need to know God personally, experientially, you're gonna need to depend on God's word and be living for more than this present moment if you're gonna keep from losing heart. 
Look at how God's word, so much about God's word here. Look at how God's word is set in contrast to the frailty of human beings. Grass withers, flower fades. He just blows on it. People are like grass, but the word of God stands forever. Secondly, look at how God's word has already been fulfilled in the past in a way that is so encouraging for the present. Let me tell you something. Christians today sometimes are just acting like this is one of the worst times to be alive for the Lord. This, this is the one of the worst times. A, you're not reading history. Get a grip. And this is still one of the best countries to be a Christian. Go somewhere else and check it out and stop crying and whining and running and carrying on and trying to get people to take their cues from you. This is still one of the best countries to be a Christian. And this is not the worst time to be alive as a Christian. And here's another huge advantage. When, oh, so many Christians centuries ago, Jesus hadn't even come. They were being promised he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The one that would solve our biggest problem, the sin problem that separates us from a holy God. It's coming, it's coming. We look back now, we live on this side of the cross and we're like, oh, but he came, he lived, he died, he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us now day and night. We have a great high priest who died once for sin and then sat down at the right hand of the Father and it never needs to be done again. We've been given a robe of righteousness today. There's no condemnation for us today. We have his Holy Spirit as an engagement ring today. We have an inheritance that cannot be taken or shaken. I don't know where we're headed. I don't know what America or the world will intend to take from us. We may lose some things, but they cannot take what matters most. They cannot keep me from having direct access to his throne. When I wanna pray, I can pray in Jesus' name and it gets there. It doesn't matter where they put me and what they do to me. I've got his spirit living in me and they cannot take it or shake it. And right now, praise God, we have his word. We have his word in more helpful English translations than any other tongue and yet Christians don't read it. We've got his word that's been made alive to us. We've got his spirit living in us. We've got direct access to his throne. And oh, by the way, even though there's been more fighting in the family of God than ever before, it's still a huge gift that we have each other. We don't have to hide our cars and park secretly and go down to some tunnel to try. Cars park publicly on my street and we open the windows in the spring and we sing about Jesus for our Bible study and nobody arrests us. We are blessed. And we gotta get refocused. Oh, we get to look back and see all, you realize how many prophecies and promises have been fulfilled already? And so now, we're living way down here. L let me help you. If you're that person that's th thinking, now when we get to the last days, I'm gonna get serious with my money, my time, my priorities. That would be now. 
Don't wait for the beast or whatever it is you think is supposed to happen. That's now. From the moment that he gave us the Holy Spirit at Pentecost until he returns again is the last days. We're in the last days. Live for what matters most. Be filled with the Spirit and get reoriented to something bigger. Don't let your flesh or this world or our enemy Satan shrink your world down to houses, cars, money, politics and people, there's something bigger we get to get in on. Kingdom of God, gospel, Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm talking about. Look at verse three and four. Verses three and four are promising and predicting the first arrival of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist preparing the way. Every valley is gonna be exalted, hills be made low. When, when a king was coming, a team would go before him. They had bad roads back then. And straighten out the roads and, and lift low places and bring down. That's what he's talking about. John the Baptist was gonna prepare the way for Jesus Christ to come the first time. And this prediction is happening 700 years before he came. And he did. But verse five has to be talking about something greater. Look at verse five again. Because verse five tells us, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. When Jesus came the first time, it was just a handful of shepherds and some wise men that figured it out. He came as lowly, humble baby Jesus in the manger. Oh, you guys, verse five, verse five. Verse five is talking about when Jesus comes back and splits the sky from the east to the west and the trumpet sounds and he comes back as King Jesus to rule and reign. And if you've been thinking, when is somebody gonna make this right? When there will be justice? When will evil be vanquished? It's coming. King Jesus is coming and will do it and nobody's gonna miss it. Every eye all flesh will see, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will rule and reign with him. And I had a guy at the, the at LA Fitness come up the other day, because he knows I'm a Christian, and he's not, and things are so bad. He's like, when is God gonna do something about this, Pastor Brad? Hmm? And I said, oh my goodness, he is, he is. But you know what's going on right now, my friend? I leaned over my little treadmill. Every day that he delays is his mercy and kindness that more may come to faith. See, everyone loves to act like we need these evil people to be judged. Guess what? We are the evil people. A whole lot of people you love are gonna go down. And so every day he delays we say, oh God, use me to point someone to you. you. You're that long suffering. It's not his will that any should perish. He delays evil. Trust me, evil bugs him more than it does you. Trust me, un injustice bothers him more than it does you. But obviously his mercy and loving kindness and grace is greater than ours because he delays and he has us here to be his people. We're to be ambassadors for Christ. I'm not saying quit your job. Please stay in the marketplace. Here's my view on Christians. They're great when they're spread out. It's like the good that manure does. And when you pile them up in one place, it stinks. We do not need you all working at the church. Keep doing what you're doing, but do it with the mindset of, oh my goodness, I get to be an ambassador for Jesus. I get to be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in this place. You know, I have Christians all the time, it's like, oh, I wish I could work with all Christians. I do, it is not wonderful. 
Trust me. Yes, we don't have the F-bomb dropping, but we got massive problems behind the scenes. It is not Nirvana back there. So just stay with the lost F-bomb people and be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. It's not some wonderful thing. And he didn't intend us to huddle up. I, even, even every time I got people in my church, we're all gonna buy a piece of land together and build houses. Please don't. It will go sideways. It will end poorly. Just wait till heaven. That's called heaven. When we're glorified, that will work out. Until then, it's probably not gonna work out. Spread out for his glory. Live for his glory. Look at how God's word points us to the future in the midst of shattering circumstances. He's coming. He's coming. What's he doing when you know what's coming next? It changes how you live now. Now, but sadly, the focus to too many Christians want to know what's coming next right now in America. What's coming next politically? What? Think bigger. I don't have to know that. And he never promised he would let you know that. But here's what we do know. And it's going to be soon. He's coming next as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the meantime, rest in him, trust him, know him, and live for him. You'll never see the Apostle Paul in his letters, right? Paul or Peter or James. You'll never see any of the apostles in their letters to Christians trying to convince them that what they're going through right now isn't hard. He's writing to Christians in Ephesus, Corinth, and I hope you realize they had it worse than we do. You'll never see him pray. I love to track with the prayers of Paul because I love to pray, but I want to pray right. You will not see him ever praying, Lord, get them out of there. Lord, deliver them. Lord, stop. You will see things like this. Oh, I'm praying for you that you would know the love of Christ, the depth, the height, the breadth, the length, and to be filled with the fullness of God when you know Christ and you know his love and you know who you are and you know his kingdom's here now and you know you're part of something bigger and you know you're not home It changes how you respond to difficult circumstances even when the circumstances don't change at all. We're changed. And guess what? As people see how we're changed when our circumstances don't change, it causes them to ask. We don't have, nobody, I hope you realize, no one's asking, oh wow, you're so angry. Help me know what you have that I don't have. Unbelievers are angry. There's nothing special about that. Oh, you're freaking out. What, what do you have that I don't have? I'm freaking out too. It is a horrible testimony. We're supposed to look like somebody who has something different. That's why 2 Peter 3 says, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that you have. Has anybody asked you about the hope that you have lately? Not if you're freaking out. But what if they see you just living lovingly, a servant heart, humbly, not shouting, not screaming? And I say, why aren't you you getting in on this? Why aren't you acting like everybody else? Oh, chance to share the gospel, chance to talk about Jesus, chance to point someone to real hope. But finally, I want you to see how, look at how knowing God and knowing where you're headed changes your ability to persevere. I hope you realize The Bible is all about persevering, persevering. 
Now, Christian best-selling books are all about formulas for getting out of trouble. Formula, 10 secrets to this, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, the king's kids go first class. You just don't find any of that in the Bible at all. I mean, you find the Bible actually promising and all those who will live godly will suffer persecution. You find Paul in the book of Acts saying, through, mo- through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. You find James saying, count it all joy, not if, not if, but when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and perseverance. Romans five, you find, I therefore celebrate, and I, and I rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces character and patience and perseverance find the Bible talking about it and promising you will suffer, you will have trials, and I will use it to make you more like my son. That's what you see the Bible talking about. Look at verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll rise up like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Oh, it's no mistake that this chapter, there's actually a big God, one big God thing after the next, actually ends focusing on us. Why does it go from all about God now to us? I'll tell you why. The Bible is not interested in just giving us a lot of information about God. That information about God was intended to produce transformation in us and change us. How we live, how we persevere, what we think we can do next. Before I unpack verse 31 a little more, I want you to notice what's going on in verse 29. Because I don't know about you, more and more I do feel overwhelmed. More and more I do feel inadequate, insufficient, weak. So when I see big verses about power of God, chapters about power of God, I assume you're the same. I think, how do I get in on that? How do I get some of that power of God? Oh, verse 29 tells us who qualifies for the power of God. Look at verse 29 again. He gives power, say it, to the weak, to the weak. To the weak. We always think God needs to be, be strong. God needs to be me to be firing on pistons for all pistons for, he, for him to use me. We always think, oh, I don't want to have any limitations. I don't want to feel weak. I, I. It's not how the Bible talks. It's not how the Apostle Paul talked in his personal life, 2 Corinthians 12. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. He begged God to remove it. And God said, no, I'm going to leave you with it, but I'll give you grace. And then Paul said, therefore, I will gladly boast in my weaknesses because when I'm weak, his power is made perfect. Most present, most evident, most real in my life in the midst of my weakness. He gives power to the weak, but that's so hard for us to come to grips with. But then I want you to notice something else as we close about verse 31. Have you ever thought about the sequence of verse 30? I know know you've probably seen it cross-stitched and on a coffee mug and on a t-shirt and in the Christian bookstore. Pretty popular verse. But did it ever strike you that the sequence is odd? Those who wait on the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Doesn't it seem like, human speaking, if we had thought of this idea, this analogy, we would have you walk in. Those that walk, obey a little bit. 
Oh, and, and if you obey consistently and read your Bible, ooh, you might even start to run. You begin to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit, you run, and if you get good at that, oh, and you read the right books, ooh, you get in the zone, and you soar. And there'd be books about how to soar, how to only soar, how to always soar. Our human nature is, how do I soar? I don't wanna walk, I don't even wanna run. I wanna soar. It's the soaring books that sell. I wanna soar, I want the secret to soaring. Why is it put together this way? In fact, it almost seems anticlimactic. Those that wait on the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. What are we gonna do next? Lay down, curl up? Where's this headed? It's just like boom, boom, boom. Here's what I think's going on, you guys. Because God understands something about the Christian life that we struggle to accept and settle in with. You ready? Steady walking, even if it's a baby step, just putting the next foot forward is what the bulk of the Christian life is comprised of. Not soaring, walking, taking the next step, we tend to wait, and as soon as God sheds enough light that I can see the next 15 months, three years, I'll soar through that. He just wants us to take the next step, even if it's a baby step. Walking, just being obedient with the next step is the bulk. Oh, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I have had moments of soaring. I'm 58 now, I've been a Christian since I was seven, I've been a pastor at 30, for 35 years. Praise God, I know some soaring. But it is not the bulk of my life. I've had some seasons of soaring. I hope you have too. I hope there may be one ahead. But if I never soar again, I have settled into the sweetness of knowing him in my weakness and just taking the next step and seeing him work in ways that are beyond what I could ever imagine. William Carey, the father of modern missions who actually accomplished some amazing things for the glory of God said this, I can plod, this is my only genius. To this I owe everything. The greatest heroes of the faith are not always those who are soaring, but those who are simply taking the next step. I can plod. You may be guilty of thinking, I'm not that gifted, I don't have that many amazing gifts. Uh, uh, my story, my background, my experience. Can you plod? God loves to use plotters. I want you to bow your head as we close. And I want you to think, what would the next step look like for you today? Maybe you've been waiting to soar and you wanna know more. You wanna know more and you wanna soar. And you just feel like God's not even speaking. You feel like you're just getting silence. Let me encourage you to try this. Consider saying, Lord, I don't have to soar. But if you would show me what the next step is for me, I would take it. Next step. Maybe it's to trust God in that marriage and give it time. Don't hit the exit door. Maybe it's to forgive that other person in your past or your present. Maybe it's to step out of your comfort zone and into a new ministry and say yes, yes. And here's what you need to understand. Often that step 
of obedience will be out of the light of what you know into the dark of what you don't know. But you do know who's in the dark with you. He's with you. I don't have to see. I don't have to see all the way through. If you'll just give me the next step, would you say, Lord, show me the next step and I'll take it. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son, what he's done, what he's doing and what he will yet do. Help us to know you personally so that we can rest in you, trust you and live for what matters most. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.